0: you do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit truegreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed.
1: I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington. And this week on Face the Nation, domestic and international crises test global relations as world leaders converge in London for Queen Elizabeth's funeral. Their next stop, the annual United Nations gathering in New York. And as President Biden struggles to fight economic headwinds, a political battle over immigration explodes when red state governors pick up the pace on relocating migrants crossing their borders by unceremoniously relocating them to blue state sanctuaries, like the sidewalk in front of the vice president's Washington home. Plus, Russian President Vladimir Putin faces a public rebuke from a key partner and the cold shoulder from another as Ukrainians retake more of their territory, uncovering horrors left behind by Russian forces. Finally, our continuing coverage of the stress test of our democracy as our nervous nation starts the 50-day countdown to midterm election day. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning, and welcome to Face the Nation. It is a somber Sunday as we come on the air today. In London, there is unprecedented security for the hundreds of world leaders, including President Biden, who are gathering for tomorrow's state funeral of Queen Elizabeth. It will be the largest assembly of heads of state and government in years. Our Scott Pelley spoke with President Biden before he left for the UK and discussed how he's navigating the new world order for tonight's season premiere of 60 Minutes,
2: President Xi and Vladimir Putin have met on the same day that you and I are sitting here in the White House, and I wonder if this is a new, more complicated Cold War. How do you manage it? I don't think it is a new, more complicated Cold War. Look, when um, when President Xi invited Putin to. Beijing during the Olympics, where they had their meeting and the the new relationship. Not long after that, I called President Xi, not to threaten at all, just to say to him we've met many times. And I said that if you think that Americans and others will continue to invest in China based on your violating the sanctions that have been imposed on Russia, I think you're making a gigantic mistake, but that's for your decision to make. Thus far, there's no indication that they've put forward weapons or other things that Russia has wanted. So, uh, well, maybe I shouldn't say anymore. Oh, I wish you would. No.
1: Here at home, a political firestorm erupted between Republicans and Democrats over immigration, an issue made more complicated by challenging relationships between the U.S. and some of our neighbors to the South. Republican governors have been relocating some who've crossed the border into their red states for months now. But last week, the images of migrants flown or bused from Texas to Martha's Vineyard, Vice President Harris's residence in Washington and New York City, has sparked a fury of political backlash.
3: I think it is um, the height of irresponsibility, much less just... um, frankly, a dereliction of duty when you are an elected leader to play those kinds of games with human life.
4: They were so proud to be sanctuary jurisdictions,
5: saying how bad it was to have a secure border. The minute even a small fraction of what those border towns deal with every day is brought to their front door, they all of a sudden go berserk.
6: Now New Yorkers and people in Washington,
5: D.C. are having to deal with it, and now Texas is sharing our pain with the rest of the country.
1: The U.S. is set to record more than 2 million migrant arrests at the border with Mexico this year, a record high. We turn now to Democratic Congressman Henry Cuellar. He represents a border district in South Texas, and he joins us this morning from Laredo. Uh, Congressman... I know you feel strongly about what's happening in your backyard. I wonder if both you and your constituents support busing these migrants up and down the East Coast.
7: Look, you know, first of all, we need solutions and not theater. Uh, by sending off uh, folks off to uh, New York and Chicago, it does bring attention, but I, we want to focus more on solutions on the border. We got to give Border Patrol, we got to give Vice Homeland Security. The equipment, the you know, the making sure they have everything where they can enforce the law. Because if we don't have repercussions at the border, we're going to continue getting eight thousand people a day. And let me mention one more thing, Margaret. You know, they they might get two buses uh, a day uh, in some of those cities. Just for my hometown of Laredo, we're sending out 21 to 26 buses a day yeah. out of Laredo just to give you an idea of what's happening here.
1: I right. understood the volume. But of course, in some of these places like Martha's Vineyard, there aren't even, you know, migration centers and there was no coordination. Is that the part you're objecting to?
7: Yeah, look, after all, uh, the the migrants are human beings and we got to treat them like human beings are being used as political pawns to get uh, uh, to get publicity. But at the same time, you know, I represent some of the poorest counties along the border uh, in the nation.
1: Right. Well, I know you have shared with us um, some video of what's happening uh, in your district um, that law enforcement officers have shared with you, um, some pictures, some video that our viewers are seeing right now. Uh, Is law enforcement getting the resources that they need?
7: No, look, you know, the men and women in green, uh, the men and women uh, from Homeland, they need to get the support they're good men and women, and what they need to do is have two things. One, they need to get more personnel, and we're adding more personnel in the appropriations bill. Uh, they need to get the equipment. They need to get, but uh, they need to get help. But the most important thing is they gotta be able to enforce the repercussions, because if you don't enforce the repercussions-
1: What does that mean, repercussions? Are you talking about the fact that many of these migrants that are being busted are from countries like Venezuela, where the U.S. cannot deport them because of diplomatic relations being so strained?
7: Look, you know, right now we're getting people from Saudi Arabia, China, India, Bangladesh, and of course, Cuba uh, and uh, Venezuela- there are certain folks, you know, the countries that might not accept some of the people, you got to look at the asylum, but most of the people coming in don't apply for asylum. We got to do, as your next guest is going to say, Secretary Jay Johnson, he treated the people with respect, but at the end of the day, he uh, re- uh, he enforced the law and he returned mm-hmm. people. And mm-hmm. one of the things that this administration is not doing is they're showing, pe- that he showed people going and landing in the countries in Honduras and uh, Salvador to show that there's repercussions. Right. Margaret, when was the last time you saw you saw a picture or video of people going back? You only see people coming in, and you gotta have words along well, with action to enforce it.
1: Right. I mean, it, it's pretty complicated, but Title Forty Two still is in place. There is expelling of migrants happening. It sounds like what I hear you saying is you want the White House or higher level officials. To go and make these public statements. Um, Vice President Harris, when she was asked about this, pointed right back to people with your job, lawmakers, to go rewrite the laws and pass immigration reform. Uh, What actually needs to be done and how do you respond to that?
7: Look, there are enough, and and without respect to the VP, there are enough uh, laws on the book right now that can return people back. Secretary Johnson, your next guest, did it the right way. He he treated people with dignity, but he returned people and he showed images of people being returned because right now the, the cartels are, are using people because they make, let's say, $8,000 a person. In two years with all the people have come in, the getaways included, that's about 4 million individuals. You multiply that by $8,000 and that shows you how much this, yeah. That guy being enriched at the sake of those human beings.
1: Well, on that point, the Homeland Security Secretary was on this program back in July after those 53 migrants died in the most tragic smuggling incident in this country. And he said it is possible because of how sophisticated these smugglers have gotten to bypass U.S. checkpoints sometimes. Um, Is it that the framing of this conversation is completely wrong? Uh, that it's not just people walking across, that it is very sophisticated criminal enterprises?
7: Look, everybody that comes across is somehow controlled by the, uh, by the bad guys. I mean, people who just don't happen to walk across a river, across the border, it's all controlled by the uh, The migrants, every sector, for example, along the border is controlled by some sort of cartel uh, across. Yes, they're very sophisticated. Yes, they got the money. Yes, they do counterintelligence. What happened to those 53 migrants? We don't have a checkpoint that's big enough to handle what we're seeing. So the bad guys were able to use that checkpoint because we haven't put the resources on that checkpoint like we need to do.
1: Mm hmm. Um, And I know you've shared images with us of some of the coyotes, some of the smugglers who have gotten these trailers filled with people across. But there is interdiction taking place. I know you know that. What are you saying is needed?
7: Well, what what I'm saying is if you look at the Border Patrol sectors in my area, 60 percent of the Border Patrol agents are in border processing centers. That is, they're taking care of migrants. Mm -hmm. 10 percent of them are doing administrative work. That leaves only 30% of the Border Patrol doing the work, 30%. Therefore, large numbers coming in will be crossing. And then you also have more deaths out there because there's less Border Patrol agents saving. Border Patrol needs help. Men and women in green need help. No ifs, no buts about that.
1: Congressman, lastly, you know, one of the bigger problems in this country right now is the economy and the worker shortage that we have. I wonder if this is part of that. If you have people who are desperate for economic opportunity coming here and America needs workers, isn't there some way to make this work for America?
7: Absolutely. I support a guest worker plan. I support a way that you can. And we passed that from the House. We were waiting for our Senate to get that okay. done. And I would tell you that if we have people under a guest worker plan, then Border Patrol's job will be done easier because the people looking for a job will come in the legal way and then Border Patrol can focus on the bad people. So it would help us on, on security. So we need to make our legal system work okay. better.
1: All right, Congressman, thank you for your insights. And we turn now to the guest you heard the congressman talking about, Jay Johnson. He served as Homeland Security Secretary under former President Obama, and he joins us this morning from New Jersey. Um, Mr. Secretary, uh, your policies are being endorsed here. Um, I don't know if you want to respond, though, to what the congressman said in terms of a stronger message needing to be sent by this administration going to countries and showing that expelling of migrants is happening.
5: Well, thanks for having me on, Margaret. First, I know that uh, following me is Professor Robert Pape, uh, who will present some findings on his research. I've been a big proponent of his research now Mm -hmm. about the concerns around white nationalism for some time, and I urge your viewers to pay close attention to what Professor Pape has to say. Information I- illegal immigration is an information-sensitive phenomenon. It reacts sharply to information in the marketplace about perceived changes in enforcement policy on our southern border.
4: Mm-hmm.
5: Uh, this administration, I believe, unfairly is perceived as, as lax on border enforcement. In fact, uh, we are sending back over one hundred thousand people a month, and have been for the last two years. Over two million people. The lesson I learned managing this issue is you've got to repeat yourself maybe 25 times before anybody will listen to you. You have to show that we are in fact sending people Why back isn't probably that about as fast as well that's a good question. My friendly advice to the current administration DHS and the White House is we have to continually stress that we are in fact with the machinery of government about as fast as we probably can given the current legal construct and the resources we have sending people back at well over 100,000 either expo- expulsion or or deportation that's a lot of people now there's a larger problem here that frankly we did not face when I was in office we were de- dealing principally with the northern triangle countries Guatemala Honduras El Salvador and Mexico this problem has become hemispheric. Mm-hmm. Uh, in addition to those countries, you now have Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela who are not cooperating with us. Their countries are literally imploding uh, and there's migration to the north and the south. Uh, our, our border patrol capabilities, our resources are bigger than they were eight, seven years ago uh, when I was in office, but they do struggle to, to keep up with this, with this crisis. And uh, from, from my point of view, we need to stress that we are, in fact, returning people as fast as we can.
1: So when it comes to moving migrants around the country right now, you're a lawyer. The federal government moves migrants from the border to other parts of this country quite often. What's the difference when a state governor does it, albeit, I know, without warning?
5: Well, there's a right way and a wrong way to do that, Margaret. The wrong way is on 20 minutes' notice to send people by bus or airplane to the Edgartown Airport or to Mass Ave in front of the vice president's residence without giving local resources, NGOs, shelters, local government an opportunity to plan for how they intend to feed and and clothe and and house migrants. Mm -hmm. What the governors of Florida and Texas are doing, frankly, is a political stunt uh... and treating people like livestock the right way to move people to the interior and i think it's something that we should do eight thousand a day uh... into McAllen, into henry cuellar's district in laredo or el paxo i've been saying for some time is not sustainable yeah and so we do need to move people to the interior but through a well coordinated effort in coordination with ngos catholic charities state and local government and the federal government there is a right way to do that. It requires coordination and cooperation.
1: Why isn't that happening? Um, I guess is the question we keep coming back to. And as you're saying, it's becoming politicized. The Wall Street Journal had an op ed saying it's hard to imagine a bigger spectacle of American political failure than the histrionics over migrants. They slam Republicans for staging a political stunt, but they also say Democrats are just trying to deflect away from their own border policy failures. Is that a fair assessment in your view?
5: Frankly, Margaret, the politics currently are such that politicians, elected officials, find it more advantageous to simply scream at the other side and complain about how evil or lax the, the other side is. It does take political courage to come together and put together legislation on comprehensive immigration reform. It passed the Senate in 2013. It failed in the House in 2014. But that's simply the only way we're going to deal with this problem. Uh, through uh, guest worker programs, through stronger border security, through trying to address the problem at the source, it takes political courage. But right now, the politics of this issue are all wrong, and I'm afraid nothing's getting done.
1: But but we have a crisis, so it requires action. Do you see a clear, coordinated? Planning or strategy from the White House that controls Customs and Border Patrol and Homeland Security and the people on the front lines of this.
5: I know DHS is working very hard. They've 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 ramped up the resources uh, to deal with the the influx at the southern border. Uh, it, it's much larger. The the ability to move larger volumes of people is much larger than it was seven eight years ago. Uh, but there needs to be a more comprehensive federal, state, local, executive, and legislative branch effort at this. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we can do this if we're willing to cooperate, work together, exercise some political courage, have the governor of Texas willing to work with governors of some northern states at moving people in a more coordinated, cooperative fashion into the interior of our country.
1: Secretary Johnson, thank you for your analysis this morning. Face the Nation will be right back. Stay with us. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. We want to take a look now at the latest challenges facing our economy. Our Mark Strassman reports from Los Angeles.
8: Back on track, America's railroads with a tentative labor deal. But no one can seem to put the brakes on inflation. The latest rate, 8.3%. That's six straight months above 8%.
9: We now have an inflation that may be much more entrenched and sticky.
8: Economist Diane Swank, an advisor to the Federal Reserve, worries workers keep losing ground.
9: All the gains in employment we've seen, all the acceleration in wages we've seen. We've lost all of that and then some to inflation.
8: Blame a tangle of lingering Buffeters, including the pandemic recovery, consumer demand, Ukraine, and the supply chain muddle, which is why averting a railroad strike was so critical. This doesn't help the backlog at Southern California ports, the gateway for roughly 40% of American imports. Here at the Port of Los Angeles, the director says 28,000 shipping containers need to go out by train. That number should be zero. Good news: dropping gas prices, 3.68 a gallon, the national average, down 26 cents in the last month. Now bad news: grocery costs jumped 13.5 percent year to year, the biggest leap since 1979. Electricity, car repairs, rent—all up. Same for medical costs, even trips to the dentist. With more people living paycheck to paycheck, the average household spending $460 more a month than a year ago. And mortgage rates also trending up. The 30-year fixed average creeped above 6% for the first time in 14 years. For everyday Americans, it's a lot. And the more entrenched inflation becomes, the thornier the recovery. On Tuesday, the Fed meets again, and you know the agenda. Analysts expect another rate hike, the fifth one this year. Our
1: Mark Strassman reporting from Los Angeles. We'll be right back. We turn now to Ukraine and recent setbacks for Russian President Vladimir Putin, both diplomatically and on the ground in Ukraine. That blue area is territory retaken by Ukraine in recent days and they've made some horrific discoveries there. CBS News foreign correspondent Deborah Pata reports.
9: This is what Russian troops left behind when they fled Izium in panic. A pine forest of death, more than 400 wooden crosses marking shallow graves and new allegations of atrocities to add to a list of war crimes so long, it numbers over 30,000. It's overwhelming for investigators who've been at it for months now. Multiple torture chambers across the region dispense the terror that kept civilian populations under control. These grim discoveries come after a lightning counter-offensive reclaimed most of the territory seized by Russia in the northeast at the start of the war. It began here in Bayrak, where Russian soldiers fled their bases down here in panic clearing the way for Ukrainian forces to reshape the battlefields of Kharkiv. Vladimir Putin's war is not going according to plan. Here is Volodymyr Zelensky braving liberated towns near the front line to pay tribute to his soldiers this past week. President Zelensky where he told us he intends to keep Russian troops on the run. The main thing is
10: we are coming back and we are on the way to the end.
9: In striking contrast to Vladimir Putin desperately needing allies, who's yet to visit his troops on the ground. Reduced to this a video showing the leader of the Russian mercenary group Wagner recruiting prisoners for the war in Ukraine, promising freedom in exchange for fighting on the front line. Wagner has been accused of human rights atrocities in Syria and several African nations, raising the haunting fear of more wooden crosses on shallow graves in a country that has already endured unimaginable suffering.
1: Our Deborah Patter reporting in Ukraine. We'll be right back with a lot more Face the Nation. Stay with us.
9: CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you.
1: Welcome back to Face the Nation. We are joined now by Andriy Kostin, the prosecutor general of Ukraine. Good morning, and thank you for being here.
10: Good morning. Uh,
1: We just saw our correspondent show some pretty horrific images of what is happening in your country. You keep a database of possible war crimes. You have more than 30,000 documented. How do you begin to sort through them and prioritize
10: Um, First of all, at the moment, we have fixed uh, 34,000 war crimes in Ukraine. Um, When we are talking about prioritization, of course, the cases like we see today and yesterday and days before of war crimes committed in Kharkiv region, including the IZUM, of course, such cases are our priority. Nevertheless, We have a lot of cases which are still ongoing, which started in places like Bucha and Irpin, And all of the shelling and destroying of all of civil uh, objects in Ukraine are also fixed and then are also investigated. Mm -hmm. So what we see now is, of course, the uh, horrible amount of potential war crimes committed by Russian aggressor. I would like to say even that what we see now is a system of Russian aggressor. What they do on the occupied territory. And it seems that for me that whenever Russian army comes, they turn this place into new butcher, as we see in Izum.
1: president was on this program in the spring in the wake of Bucha, where it was horrific, the images. He called that genocide. Are you seeing evidence of genocide? Can you bring that case to a court?
10: We have a case on genocide in the office of the prosecutor general. And we are in all the time in communication with International Criminal Court and Prosecutor Hahn because the International Criminal Court has also the authority to, uh, to look at the genocide case. So we understand that all of these facts put together will lead us to possible a conviction in crime of genocide.
1: No sitting leader has ever been prosecuted for genocide. Can you actually prove that Vladimir Putin authorized or knew all of what was happening under the command of his military?
10: Of course, it's not an easy way to prove this uh, system of command responsibility from the highest level. What we understand at the moment that the crime of aggression is definitely we know who is responsible Mm -hmm. for it. Because the crime of aggression is the mother of all of these crimes, of war crimes, genocide, because without aggression, there will be no other war crimes. And for that reason, for the crime of aggression, the highest politically and military leadership should be prosecuted and should be punished.
1: This past week, the United States sanctioned um, the Presidential Commissioner for Children's Rights. This is an odd title given what she is accused mm. of, um, who has overseen the taking. Of children and forcing them into Russia. Your ambassador has put that number at 91,000. There are reports that Secretary Blinken has cited that puts that number at 260,000 children taken from their families. How many of these kids can be returned? And can you prove that this is part of this pattern you're talking about of genocide and intent to destroy?
10: We definitely understand that the kidnapping and forcibly uh, uh, moving of our children of the future of Ukrainian nation forcibly, uh, forcibly uh, sent to Russia uh, is of course from my point of view is an element of potential genocide. I will tell you that at the moment we have uh, more than 50 children, only 50, 53-55 uh, children returned to Ukraine. Some of them now are in in a safe place in Europe. Mm -hmm. But the number which we uh, in the Office of Prosecutor General have is thousands and thousands of children uh, for which we have exact evidence that they were kidnapped and forcibly sent to Russia. We we identified now more than 5,500 children who were kidnapped and sent to Russia. Because we... In our office, we need to identify definitely.
1: Okay. And, and the United States is now pointing that finger, figure, finger, excuse me, right at the Kremlin. I want to ask you about sex crimes and sexual assault and rape. There have been some horrific accounts women chained in basements, children who are attacked. I don't even want to recite half of what I read yesterday. Um, is rape a deliberate act? Of subjugation being used by Russia?
10: We saw it in Bucha. We know that these cases were in Kharkiv region, which is now deliberated. We have evidences of, of these cases. The most important is to find out proper Evidences and to fix them properly. What what, what I mean? did what I did at the moment now, I created a special unit in the prosecutor office general for the sexual violence crimes, and we have a specific team of prosecutors who are well trained for this category of crimes. The uh, it's important for us to communicate with people and to find out these cases Mm -hmm. in order for the victims of these cases to report about them. And for this reason, we also are in close contact with our colleagues in European countries where a lot of people, who uh, Ukrainians who uh, fled to Europe, some of them could be victims or witnesses of sexual violence crimes. And we are now communicating, trying to find also these cases. Mm -hmm. Now, in the office of Prosecutor General, we have now more than 40 ongoing investigations on cases where we definitely know that the crime of sexual violence was committed by Russian aggressors.
1: Sir, thank you for your time today, Mr. Prosecutor General. Thank you. Good luck to you. We'll be right back. We turn now to democracy and politics. University of Chicago professor Robert Pape studies political violence. And Professor Pape, good morning to you. Good morning. It's good to have you here in person. Uh, When we spoke back in January about the research you've done at that point, you issued a warning that stuck with us because you talked about the threat of political violence around the midterm elections. We are 50 days away. What are you worried about now?
4: Margaret, we have not just a political threat to our democracy, we have a violent threat to our democracy. It's important to remember that January 6 wasn't just trespassing and going into a federal building. Thousands of individuals use violence to stop the peaceful transfer of presidential power. What we have been tracking at our center at the University of Chicago, the Chicago Project on Security and Threats for a year and a half, is the violent portion of that insurrectionist movement. Today, there are millions of individuals who don't just think the election was stolen in 2020. They support violence to restore Donald Trump to the White House. In fact, just over the weekend, that is, just a few days ago, we conducted our most recent nationally representative survey. Today, there are 13 million individuals, the equivalent, I should say, of 13 million individuals who support the use of force to restore Donald Trump to the presidency.
1: That's about 5% of the U.S. population. 5%. Have extrapolated that from your research. Um, that's obviously disturbing. Um, I want to ask you about the context we are in right now, because we're seeing a lot of stressors. The economy, clearly one of them, and what we've been talking about today, immigration and migration. Um, You were on last time talking about something called the Great Replacement Theory, and that is the belief among some of these insurrectionists that the Democratic Party is trying to replace voters with new people, more obedient voters. How Widespread is that conviction, and does what is happening now in cities up and down the East Coast trigger this?
4: Um, It likely could, Margaret, reinforce these fears of the great replacement. To be clear, we're focusing on not just support for Trump, but the violent support for Trump mm-hmm. that overrides democracy. And when you look at that, what you see is there are two big drivers among those 13 million individuals. The first driver is this fear of the great replacement, the idea that the Democratic Party is uh, replacing the current electorate, the current white electorate, with more uh, minority voters uh, from the third world. And, you and hear to be the-
1: clear. Non-U.S. citizens cannot vote in federal elections in the midterm races, just to be abundantly clear.
4: That is correct. It is a conspiracy theory, but it's not just on fringe social media like Parler, Gab, 4chan, 8chan. This is every day on Fox News. It's on Newsmax. It's on One America. It's on talk radio. So this is driver number one. Driver number two is a belief in the QAnon cult idea, which at first blush sounds a little um, almost laughable that uh, they would believe a satanic group of pedophiles runs the U.S. government, but we've done focus groups with these folks. And what they really mean by that, Margaret, is that there are politicians that have gotten on the Lolita Express with Jeffrey Epstein and have taken money for foundations, for political support. Corruption. For corrupt, that's what's really going on. So, if you marry those two together, you have a dangerous cocktail. You have the fear of this great replacement happening um, by a Democratic Party, and then you have the fear of corruption and immorality, and that's that dangerous combination that's leading to violent support against our democracy.
1: So, you just mentioned QAnon. and as you just explained, it's a set of conspiracy theories involving sex trafficking. And there is this belief that President, former President Trump is the one person or one of the people who could end it all. And I want to play some video here because at a political rally last night, uh, Mr. Trump used a song titled after a QAnon slogan. i want to play the sound and, and listeners will have to listen to the music, not necessarily what the president's saying. Listen to the background music.
7: It would never have happened with me as your commander in chief. And for four long
2: years, it didn't happen. And China with Taiwan is next.
1: That is a QAnon song. The former president has posted images of himself wearing a cue on his lapel on social media with the phrase, the storm is coming. That's another one of their slogans. What does all of this mean, and is it threatening?
4: Uh, First, it is threatening, just to cut right to the heart of it. What it means is that the former president is willing to court not just supporters of his, but those who support violence for his goals, number one of which is being restored to the White House. This is extremely disturbing. Because, well, in the fall of 2020, in a presidential debate, Donald Trump could be asked, well, do you know what a proud boy is? Or do you know what QAnon is? And he could say, oh, I'm not so sure. That's not the case today. Today, it's quite clear And the problem that we face is that um, over and over, in uh, tweets by the former president, he is deliberately stoking not just the fires of anger getting him political support, Mm -hmm. but the fires that are leading to that violent 13, the the equivalent of 13 million. And that is really the heart of our problem that we face as a threat to democracy. Mm -hmm. Because if it's just a political threat, well, then we can have elections. But once it's not just denying an election, but using violence as the yeah. response to an election denial, now we're in a new game. And that's why it's so important we have this conversation.
1: What has the FBI search of the former president's home done to the people you were tracking?
4: So what we've done in our poll, the one that we just recently did over the weekend, is we asked an additional question, which is, do you believe that the use of force is justified to prevent the prosecution of Donald Trump for mishandling classified information? And the numbers go up a bit. Not huge, goes from 13 to 15 million. But interestingly, when we pull apart the data, you get a slightly different set of supporters. Mm -hmm. So what's really concerning is there's a little bit of ebb and flow that goes up as we see new issues come on the horizon. Mm -hmm. And that means that we need to just realize this is really important and we need to have this national conversation about what we really want in our country.
1: And that's why we have you here today to to start that conversation. Sir, thank you for sharing your information. We'll be back in a moment. We turn now to CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent Major Garrett and CBS News Election Law Contributor David Becker, who have a new book out on the state of American democracy. It's called The Big Truth, Upholding Democracy in the Age of the Big Lie. Congratulations to you both.
6: Thank you very much. Thank you.
1: You know, Major, I want to start with you because in those, just literally the first page of the book, you use the phrase American Civil War. Mm-hmm. Um, you go on to write that in the upcoming election in November and in 2024, trust itself is going to be tested. Democracy no longer suffers from a lack of participatory energy. It suffers from a lack of respect, allegiance, knowledge, humanity, and most of all, trust. How dangerous is the moment that we are in?
6: It feels more dangerous, Margaret, than any I've encountered in covering politics at the national level since 1990 stating what clearly happened in 2020, it wasn't a fraudulent election, no crime was committed. That doesn't mean you have to be happy with the result, but one of the burdens of democracy is when you're unhappy with the result, your obligation is to win the next election, not slander baselessly the election you fairly lost. Mm -hmm. And we have a component of American politics now that wants to slander an election that was fairly lost because they're unhappy. And that unhappiness does not entitle you to drag down American democracy. Because if, Margaret, we enter a phase in American life where either political party refuses to accept a fair and verified election simply because it lost, then we will dismantle democracy bit by bit before our very eyes.
1: One of our colleagues here, Nicole Skanga, interviewed Kim Wyman. She is the senior election security lead at uh, part of Homeland Security. She spent 30 years working in elections out in the state of Washington. And in this interview, she clearly is feeling uh, that this threat is is hitting home. Take a listen.
9: Some of the threats are real, you know, we're going to hang you. I hope somebody puts a bullet in your head, that kind of thing. Um, So it's unnerving.
3: (laughs) It's unnerving.
1: It's a Homeland Security official being moved to tears what she is talking about i mean it's it's extremely powerful to me to hear that how common is that right now
3: yeah unfortunately it's very common she like so many of her colleagues and she's seeing this because she's working with them are facing an onslaught of threats and harassment and abuse in the aftermath of the 2020 election that is completely divorced from the reality of their success. The election professionals all over the country, red states, blue states, Republicans, Democrats, somehow managed the highest turnout we have ever seen in American history in the middle of a global pandemic. And the ultimate results of this election were withstood scrutiny from 60 courts around the country. It was remarkable.
1: What's the scenario they fear this November.
3: They embrace aggressive transparency. They want everyone to see everything that they're doing. And yet despite the facts, despite that transparency, all that seems to matter is that some people believe that it is is impossible for their candidate to lose. And if we get so divorced from that reality, we get so divorced from our democratic principles that as Major said, we start being unwilling to accept the, the possibility of defeat, what might, then, what, what might be possible then? Mm-hmm. And we've already seen this, this isn't hypothetical. We've seen this on January 6th, and we could see in the future dozens of little January 6th, not focused on Washington on one particular date, but focused in many different places on many different dates.
1: And Major, you talk about the um, political benefits to calling 2020 into election, particularly for the former president. According to CBS numbers, in battleground states, over 60% of Republican candidates on the ballot are election deniers. Two of the best known, perhaps, Carrie Lake out in Arizona uh, and Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania. Is this indulging this simply the cost of winning an endorsement from the former president, who is a political powerhouse? Mm-hmm. Or do they believe it?
6: It's certainly the former. Getting President Trump's endorsement runs through a sieve that requires you to say the 2020 election was stolen. And if you say it the loudest of any of the Republicans also vying for that endorsement in any particular state, you're most likely to get that endorsement. Carrie Lake's an interesting example of this phenomenon. She said before the primary was decided that fraud was afoot. She said while votes were being counted, fraud was afoot. She was trailing and then she came out ahead late in the process and said it was then therefore legitimate. I would only say that is not a veil of hypocrisy. That is the very definition of hypocrisy. The exact process you assailed is the one that made you the GOP nominee. Therefore, it's legitimate only because you become the nominee? That doesn't
1: david we've talked in the past about um democrats who have questioned the outcome of elections um republicans often point to that when when this is discussed um how concerned are you now that this kind of language is just becoming not normalized but made into just a political tool
3: yeah i'm very concerned about that because factually speaking right now we have the most professional, accurate, transparent, secure election system we've ever had. And it keeps getting better every election cycle. But and, 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 and it's
1: interesting you say that because, as you know, there has been this movement to change voting rights and to protect them. So it is becoming discussed as if there is something perhaps not working right.
3: It's really troubling in the sense that while it's not moral equivalence here, it's not coming equally from both sides of the political spectrum. It is definitely coming overwhelmingly from the extreme right right now. There certainly are aspects of it coming from across the political spectrum. But we could get to a point that if this is seen as politics as usual, that this is just part of the game, we're going to be at a very, very dangerous point for our democracy.
6: If the losing side cannot accept defeat, especially in a country that's divided 50-50. The great fear I have, Margaret, is politics is a lot like the NFL. It's a copycat league. Mm -hmm. Whatever succeeds, you replicate. On the right, in the Trump world now, the fastest way to social media fame and fundraising is to deny the 2020 election. You don't think Democrats aren't watching that and may be tempted by the same social media and fundraising lure Mm -hmm. that that has? They will be. That's why we have to stop it, back away from it and say, not here, not this place. This part of our civic life is sacred.
1: Thank you both uh, for sharing the book with us and your insights. We'll be back in a moment. Thank you for watching. For Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were Texas Congressman Henry Cuellar, a Democrat, former Homeland Security Secretary Jay Johnson, the Prosecutor General of Ukraine, Andre Kostin; University of Chicago Professor Robert Pape, CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent Major Garrett, and CBS News election law contributor David Becker. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates in CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our CBS News streaming network on Sundays at 1.30, 4, 10 p.m. Eastern, and again at 4 a.m. the next morning. And it's available through our apps, CBS News and Paramount+. Plus.
0: If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, Tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey.
9: You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
2: The Hargan women seem to have it all.
9: From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing.
2: But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household.
1: Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. Mm-hmm. No one's answering.